This podcast is brought to you by the Immigration Law Series by Emond Publishing, Canada's leading independent legal publisher. Welcome home, everybody. This is a podcast about Canadian immigration law. If you're an immigration practitioner or a student looking to get into this area, or maybe just someone looking to learn about immigration, this is a podcast for and about you. Chantal and I will tell you what you need to know, bring you expert guests to share their wisdom, and we're all going to have a lot of fun doing it. So sit back, enjoy, and welcome home. And now, Chantal is going to do some interpretive dance. Woo! Check me out. Check out these dance moves. Look at this one. Can you see me? Can you see me now? What about now? We have a great episode for you today. We are fortunate to be joined by Stephen Murrens from Larley Rosenberg in Vancouver, who is also a host on the Amazing Borderlines podcast to discuss the top federal court cases of 2021. And we also have a new installment of our Things I Wish I Knew segment for you today. Thanks for joining us. Need a concise guide on all practical and procedural aspects of Canadian immigration law? How about a contemporary resource that examines the fundamental avenues, requirements, and remedies for immigration? Have you heard about Iman's Immigration Law Series? Well, duh, I think so, because we're the general editors. Yeah, it's true. Catherine Swicky and Chantal Delage are the general editors, and Iman's Practical and Contemporary Series offers you a clear, concise, balanced guide on the most challenging areas of immigration practice. Literally the only time in our lives that anyone has called us balanced. <laughs> Learn more about Iman's Immigration Law Series at iman.ca forward slash ILS. Hello, everyone. We're fortunate to be here today with Stephen Murrens from Larley Rosenberg in Vancouver. Thank you for joining us, Stephen. We're very happy to have you. Yeah, my pleasure. Please give us a little bit more about yourself. Tell us. Give us a scoop. A little bit about more about me than you. Just me in you. general. So immigration lawyer out in Vancouver. Pretty pretty active on social media. I have a podcast also called Borderlines, which we try to make a bit more about the philosophy of immigration law. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at S-M-E-U-R-R-E-N-S. Uh, quite a few people seem to think that I work for the department based on my Twitter. <laughs> I get hate mail. I get applications. <laughs> so if you go on there, just remember, I don't work for the department. I can't speed up your application and definitely don't send me applications. <laughs> Maybe it's the suits you're wearing. I don't know. No, <laughs> it's all the A-tips. Like, it's it's nuts. Like, I get, <laughs> uh, I imagine that the department must get similar emails, and the small trickle of hate mail that I get annoys me. So, yeah, I can only imagine <laughs> wow. how they think. Well, we, we love your podcast, and we love following your Twitter feed as well. It's so informative, and you're so generous in terms of the information that you share. It's really a, a value to the profession. Yeah, uh, thanks. It I, It should be public all the A-tips, but that's a separate rant. <laughs> <laughs> so you're joining us today to talk about some of the top federal court cases of 2021. What do you want to start with? Why don't we start with, well, what I consider, at least for my practice, to have been the biggest case, which was, I don't know if you want me to give the case in the neutral sure. citation, or Singh v. Please Canada. Do. Um, Singh was actually the name of a lot of the top cases of the year, in my opinion. But Singh v. Canada, Citizenship and Immigration 2021, FC 959, 
on its the surface, it's like a straightforward visitor record. Did someone commit misrepresentation case? But it was kind of the resolution of maybe three years of uncertainty, especially on like the CBA listserv over people coming to Canada just to flagpole and not really disclosing either in an initial visitor application or a visitor extension application that their purpose of entering Canada was to flagpole. Now, I don't know, like, is, I mean, in Ontario, you're both based in Ontario. Is it flagpoling is already pretty restricted there? Yeah. At least it seems it like it is compared to here. Yeah. We have mm -hmm. certain dates and times. Yeah. Um, whereas like the BC border has remarked before that people fly from Ontario to British Columbia just to flagpole because it's there's no time restriction. It was open throughout COVID. Um, wow. And so, but what they did do was they started about two, three years ago referring people to the Immigration Refugee Board for misrepresentation if they determined that they hadn't disclosed that the reason they were either applying to extend their status was to flagpole or the reason that they were applying for a temporary resident visa was to flagpole. So it was So Singh got to Canada as a visitor and then decided, got found a job, got an LMIA and decided I'm going to go flagpoler. Yeah. His case wasn't even the most blatant thing that they're normally looking for. Like normally the cases that like we had a case that I took to the IRB where it was someone put in their temporary resident visa that they were going to be a tourist for 10 days arrived at the YVR, Vancouver National Airport, said that they were going to be just a tourist for 10 days, and then like two days later drove to the port of entry to apply for their work permit. That, I think, was the uh, scenario that was more frustrating for CBSA. Singh had like several visitor records, and just on his most recent one, wrote that the purpose of visit was family, and he didn't disclose that he had an employer who was going to get an LMIA. But d did he have the LMIA on his entry date? No, he'd been here just... for a while. He like, at least according okay, to the case, I, thought I think it was he had a... several visitor records. Yeah, I was going to say, I thought it was later on and, you know, this kind of came about. So he was working, when he submitted a renewal application, he was working. No, no, he was the, visiting the family. Visitor. He was just, uh, his purpose was visit family, visit family. Then his employer gets an LMIA or prospective employer gets an LMIA. And he goes and to the border and they say that he didn't disclose in his visitor record that he possibility. the possibility of a job. So it was, and I mean, ultimately, so, the federal it, court upheld it. Yeah, I, I was surprised by that judgment because, I mean, it, it's often the case that when people visit Canada, they may have multiple reasons for wanting to visit. And there may possibly be a job offer on the horizon, but it's not crystallized. And like, are you every time you apply for either a visitor visa or an extension of visitor status, are you supposed to tell them every possible reason that you could ever have in your mind? So what the federal case... court seemed to say, the federal court said uh, it's not for us to determine what's relevant or not, which like, I mean, you could list how someone's supposed to know what's ultimately going to be relevant or not. Unless you're going to list material. Everything. I'm going to go to this restaurant while I, uh, you know, I want to also check out this movie. I'm going to like listing what everyone might be doing. Was this material that he had? Um... Now, unfortunately, I think in court, he argued that it was a secondary purpose. Uh, so that may have impacted things. Um, 
Yeah, I also think when the government has a, you know, during COVID policy that you can change status from within Canada from visitor to worker, I think it's a little more okay um, to say I'm here as a visitor and now I found a job because it's harder to get workers across the border during COVID. There's a lot more employers looking now as well. I think CBSA would agree. I think without CBSA trying to reduce the amount of flag polling, this case doesn't happen. And that's why I think it's probably the most significant case of the year as far as it impacted my practice because I send people to the border all the time. Um, And I think it raises, I mean, it ties into other misrep cases regarding the failure to disclose U.S. refusals, that it's basically trite law at this point, that that's misrep. And people who flagpole, especially if they're from India or China, often get denied entry to the U.S. I've never... I think it's rare that people disclose those in all their future applications. And if I had to guess where the next part of the big flagpole deterrent will be, it would be further harping, further harping on um, just ways to find people inadmissible for flagpoling. So how, how do you think this should impact our practice? Like, how should we be changing our advice to clients in the future, if at all, based on this? Uh, in the letters of support that people are uploading as part of visitor record applications to tell clients to disclose, certainly if there's a prospective job offer. At the airport, it's tougher. I went to the IRB once on kiosk misrep. So when you arrive at YVR and the person has to put in the kiosk if they're coming to visit or work and their purpose of visit is to drive to the United States border, should they put work or visit? And CBSA at uh, Douglas referred someone for misrepresentation for having put visit in the kiosk. And we were successful in that case. Um, Maybe they just had really fat fingers. Could be. I don't know. I've never actually inputted the visitor. I got a print screen of everything that uh, can be inputted. But I think it's the big one is in representing people who may flagpole to expect pushback, certainly in Ontario, like. It's restricted. It's more restrictive in Ontario than it is out here. Wait, wait, would you go so far as to say to somebody, I think it's better that you actually go home and apply for the work permit from there and then come back in order to avoid this whole thing? Mm. If they, If there's an argument to be made that they didn't disclose their purpose in their visitor record application or TRV. I don't know if I would tell them to go and apply from their country of origin, but possibly leave Canada, re-enter and do it again. I happen to like, if I can get someone who speaks English and presents well in front of CBSA, I almost always prefer that to IRCC. Or explain how the job came about. Because sometimes I've had it where clients come in genuinely for a temporary purpose to fix something look in on something um you know do a review or an inspection and then they say you know they seem to get along really well with the company and now it's changed so yeah so it was true at the time but it changed later yeah but you have to put in that documentation to say you know this person did this inspection they really liked the way they work together and the knowledge level and now they'd like to offer them this job yeah and a person who can present well at the border i think would be able to explain that 
Yeah. I, I do, for my practice, we try to stay away from frog pulling, especially right now during COVID. I mean, we couldn't do it for quite some time in Ontario, but we generally just stay away from it. Well, yeah, I had uh, like a week ago, two weeks ago, um, two clients in British Columbia flagpole without issue and one client in Ontario call the two or three bridges, however many bridges there are in the Niagara region where people can flagpole. And each one said, we aren't taking flagpoling. There's a, we aren't taking work permit applications from people inside Canada. There's a pandemic. So it's a different, it just seems very different out West compared to in Ontario. Well, y'all are so relaxed out there. Yeah. Except when it comes to people from Ontario flying to BC to flagpole. (laughs) (laughs) What's the next case that you have for us that you found really interesting? Oh, might as well keep it with the sings. Um, Sing, sing a song. Yeah. Sing out loud. (laughs) I, uh, yeah, there's several like in this PowerPoint different sing cases, but one on language, which is the, you never know, like in a certain year, there are certain trends along among cases, like 2019, 20 was all of a sudden open spousal work permit misrepresentation and genuineness and all of a sudden having to change practice there. This 2021, I think was... If you're a truck driver, for one thing, expect a refusal. It seems like a nightmare. But also for language requirements, which is tied into truck drivers, that the federal court basically saying that border officers, not border officers, visa officers have wide discretion when it comes to interpreting IELTS. So there have been just a string of federal court refusals for truck drivers mainly, for people who have IELTS, you know, fives, 4.5, stuff where they would qualify for immigration and border officials stress or visa officers stressing the importance of safety, saying that it's insufficient to do the job in Canada. Well, you got to know that's a Humboldt Broncos uh, uh, leftover, I think. That's probably a direct consequence of that case. I have no doubt. Although he was a permanent resident and there's nothing to suggest that language was an issue. But I think that that did cause a big down. focus yeah well there was also um there are actually two other sing cases released the same day involving whether truck driving experience in dubai or india should count at all the neutral sites are 2021 fc 1107 and 2021 fc 1164 both released you know the federal court sends out their daily email of cases both mm-hmm. released the same day both called sing v canada completely opposite decisions on um, identical types of refusals. So it's visa officers saying that truck driving experience in Dubai doesn't count because Dubai, basically it's Dubai is hot, Canada's cold, which relates directly to Humboldt. Um, And in one case you have, I can't remember the judges, but you have one judge saying different weather and terrain affects road conditions. And it was not unreasonable for the officer to note the differences between Canada and the UAE in this regard. And then a different judge in a different case saying the officer's comments on the difference in weather and driving conditions between Canada and the UAE appear to be unrelated to job requirements. And in any event, the officer was not in a position to assess the applicant's skills and ability to drive in Canadian weather. This responsibility will fall to the employer. 
two different cases to split results. You know, you almost need the third to tie break, but the message is, well, I don't, if, if I've done, I actually did a truck driver JR based on IELTS where the guy got a mix. I think he got CLB five across the board. Which and is he, pretty good. Yeah. It's more than you need if you're here truck driving and you want to immigrate, but we didn't get leave. And uh, DOJ argued successfully that the, so the, the visa officers almost always use just the IELTS and IELTS four, including 4.5 in reading, which is CLB five just says basic user, right? Like that's all the IELTS say. And then five to eight is moderate user. And they just say, oh, he's a basic user. Therefore it's, uh, you know, he won't be able to read stop signs. He won't be able to communicate with police if there's an accident. And there's been probably, there's a lot of language cases involving truck drivers. I'd say 80% show complete deference on this issue. In our case, DOJ argued that the Canadian language benchmarks don't even apply in the foreign worker program, which I question the accuracy of. Um, well, the actual, the same it. judge that didn't grant me leave then granted a JR in another decision which had identical arguments to what I had argued. And I kind of hope that my arguments helped that other person along indirectly. But um, overall, I'd say like federal court when it comes to language is going to be super deferential to applicants. The big thing that you can, if you had to draw something from the cases is that if you're going to argue Canadian language benchmarks and what killed me was like in the JR that I or in the case that I unsuccessfully JR'd, the officer said, you know, with CLB five, they won't be able to read stop signs. And if you actually Come go on. into the CLB, you can do that at CLB one. Um, but the DOJ argued a CLB doesn't apply B it wasn't before the officer, what the CLB were. So the officer didn't have to consider it. So if you're going to try to argue um, that someone has the language ability for the position and you need to rely on the CLB or other programs to put that all in the initial application letter from the employer that someone can do the job because so you really tough. need to attack the the minutia here yeah is what and you're a saying. lot of these offices now have IELTS as a mandatory requirement in the checklist Ukraine it has to be within the last year um, yeah so if they're going to ignore it then why ask for it right yeah so then you have to go full in on even how to interpret the IELTS, which in my opinion, officers should know the CLB and shouldn't be something that applicants have to bring forward as evidence as to what a test result means. But there's even one case, which was Ali v. Canada Citizenship and Immigration 2021 FC 392. This is a provincial nominee who had a job as a manufacturing manager and he had provincial nominee, so there is no language requirement to immigrate. CLB five for reading and writing, four for listening and speaking. So not great, but the officer ruled that uh, the person needed advanced English to do that job, therefore work permit refused. And advanced is CLB nine. And when I was reading it the first half, I dreaded the dismiss thinking CLB nine is, I don't even, I mean, I've never written these tests, but that's higher than it 
the test to be an immigration consultant. Um, and the court upheld it and said it was reasonable for the officer to determine CLB 9 is required. So it just shows how deferential they are. And if that is the standard, like you could refuse, they could pretty much refuse anyone they want. Like most applicants, unless they're from English speaking countries, CLB 9 is going to be tough. Now, that's probably an outlier, but it just goes to show the deference given. Which is interesting because the whole point of having the English tests or the French tests is to try and get rid of that gray zone. Yeah, that's why they brought it in the first place is to make it more objective, like to set a standard to take the discretion out of it. Yeah. Yeah. But so there's the there's what is the standard, like the way the federal court seems to have read it and the way most visa officers read it is just how the IELTS website defines each band score in a sentence or a phrase basic moderate advanced intermediate the um whereas what i think is more compelling is actually what the equivalency charts say regarding specific duties so to me it's inaccurate if you have a canadian government document that says someone at clb1 can read a stop sign and a traffic sign to say in a visa refusal that someone with ielts five cannot do that based on the word moderate it's in my i mean you know no one cares what i think it's the federal court has decided that that leap doesn't at least the officer shouldn't be presumed to know what the clbr um and i think getting around mandatory ielts is going to be a tough uh tough bar in the future it almost seems like you have to submit, you know, your IELTS, SALPIP, TCF, TEF, then put in the equivalent, the CLB standard around that particular item, relate it back to the job duties, make sure you include the weather screenshots. Yeah. I almost feel like that's ripe for an expert opinion. I, exactly. Have someone write a letter and it, like maybe a language tutor or something and unpack all of that. Yeah. So there is one case, another Singh case. 2021 FC 638, which um, the court there, guy had CLB 5 to 7, truck driver refused due to IELTS that, um, it's basically that 4.5 in reading on the IELTS, which is CLB 5, on the IELTS website says basic and prone to making mistakes. And as you said, after Humboldt, you don't want someone coming to drive a truck who's prone to making mistakes. So in that case, though, the visa officer said that the evidence before the officer included detailed submissions on the Canadian language benchmarks, the employer's assessment, and the very detailed comparison between the IELTS and CLB provided by the employer. Now, I think visa officers should be presumed to know the Canadian language benchmarks and what they mean, but yeah, that doesn't doesn't matter well, what I think. How their own, <laughs> seeing how their own policy uh, manuals contain an equivalency chart. Yeah. Well, so in 2013, I lost my first JR about language issues and truck driver work permits. And in that case, Singruel is, I think, the name of the case. The Justice Mosley found that the Canadian language benchmarks don't apply in the foreign worker context. And partially because of that case, I think that that line is stuck around. Um, so I think at a minimum, officers aren't presumed to know 
the equivalency charts and applicants should be putting it in. Well, I think that's interesting because couldn't you also flip that on its head and say, you know, you could make the argument that, okay, my client didn't do that well on the IELTS, but it, it doesn't really matter because CLB doesn't apply here anyway. So I think you should look at X evidence instead. But it's the Would IELTS. That's the IELTS band scores that everyone yeah. they fixate on these. Like, yeah, hmm. all the language cases fixate on that one line on the IELTS website, which says IELTS 4 is basic, prone to mistakes, and IELTS 5 is moderate or modest. And I can't remember how they. I, I think we go back that. to what Chantel said, and we, we you know, join together and find a CLB expert so we can get letters to say, this is the IELTS or CELPIP test score, whatever the, the test score happens to be. Can you please correlate it to the appropriate CLB according to immigration? Here's the job duties. Yeah. Uh, you know, the knocker tier code. Yeah. And so, just getting, uh, you know, more evidence in the way, especially with the visa offices seeming to stress the need for IELTS on more and more checklists. Mm hmm. Has, has anybody tried certifying questions or anything like that? Or is it too fact specific? I'm not aware of any certified questions. I think, I'm not sure how the question would read, because you need the question to be basically, are officers presumed to know the Canadian language benchmarks? And I think that that would be too specific. Mm -hmm. um, to be certified and maybe not necessarily dispositive and maybe yeah issue. yeah right well that's really interesting it's depressing but it's interesting yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well it also really places a huge burden on representatives so lawyers and consultants to make sure when you're compiling your application you've got to cover every single little nuance it's not just the checklist plus a little more anymore it's literally a forensic audit of the job and then putting everything together and submitting that in. And then you still might not be successful. Yeah, I don't I I would assume if I was representing a truck driver who was applying from India, it's just hard to predict. Like it would never have occurred to me that there would be a flurry of refusals based on Dubai is hot, Canada is cold. <laughs> I think truck driver yeah. work permits are their own their own power to the yeah. people that do them. There's a lot of Canadians I'd like to send to Dubai with the respect to their driving skills, that's for sure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's definitely <laughs> definitely not limited. What other what's the next court case that you have for us? Um what would be the next one. Mandamus. <laughs> I think would be yeah, Mandamus. Oh, and I have that, all the I have all the comments about mandamus. Yeah, well, you might like there. There were just two cases, or I think everyone was watching, going, "What's the federal court going to do with mandamus during COVID?" And absolutely, the federal court has said, "Look, department, like you can't just say COVID." It's basically the case is summarized. You can't just say COVID. There has to be a reason. Yeah, you gotta move it. Move Al it. Al Mutadi yeah. just came out. That was a good one. Was there another one? Uh, Aguirre v. Canada, Citizenship and Immigrate was the yeah, that was first a great one, one, I think. I, haven't, yeah, that heard, was the I first. haven't seen this one. It's basically the same thing, that mm. the um, COVID can't be blamed for everything if there's no, if there isn't actually it, evidence put forward as to what the issue is. And there's been sufficient time for the government to actually address it and get to it. 
So, because I think Aguirre, there was a like a four or five month period where they kept saying COVID, 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 and and but the government was still operating, things were still moving, and uh, the federal court said that's just not enough. Mm-hmm. You got to come up with something else. Yeah. Well, when most app, like I think around the world, all types of files are being processed, and there's no travel ban anymore on if you can. If you have a permanent resident visa, you're allowed to fly here and land. And the, the like, IRCC's complete abandoning of first come, first serve yeah. has, I think, hurt them on mandamus because you can show through stuff like the open government portal how many mandamus or how many applications are being approved for people from India or people from the States. So if IRCC is saying there's a background check issue and it's easy to look at the data and say like this, we had this, I mean, we ultimately got it settled and the person got their PR, but in our mandamus applicants record, we just said like, it can't be a background check is the reason for this because there have been tens of thousands of people from India approved for back for PR. Presumably they all did the same background check, which I'm not even sure involves more than just reading the police clearance certificate. I'm sure there may be more to it than that, but I, it's not clear to me what it is. And yeah, so I think there's a lot of mandamus applications being filed. I think a lot of them are working is the sense that I get. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At some point, felt- they'll just flick a switch and approve them all. Well, I think the court is getting frustrated to say, look, you know, if all these lawyers and consultants are working and processing applications, IRCC better too. Well, also, if if they spent half the time and money on processing that they spend defending against these actions in the court, all these cases would be processed by now. Yeah, it. I don't, I mean, there's a lot that I don't get, but that that is a big Do you, one. I don't know why they don't just your- flick the side, like, yeah. Do you find you're doing that a lot more these days? The, I don't get it. I don't get it. (laughs) Yes. Why, why, why is this, huh? I don't get it. Yes. I'm finding, yeah. All the time. Thanks, brother. (laughs) I appreciate it. Well, then you look at other countries, um, like New Zealand, which just issued open work permits to everyone, has huge programs to, I just don't understand why they make extra work for themselves. They just banned smoking too for, for kids. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. I was like, whoa. Are, they're pretty innovative they're, down there. They're going crazy. Their <laughs> prime minister gives, I think during COVID, she was giving updates from her bed via Zoom that were like, sounded more sophisticated and informative <laughs> than anything we were hearing out of North America. That's like, it. Can you process my immigration to New Zealand? <laughs> I love it. You can ski in the morning and, and you know, surf at night. Yep. Well, on, on the issue of mandamus, um, I I probably in the last six months probably filed close to 80. Wow. Um, Majority of them settled after one or two conversations with DOJ, like was able to fix whatever the problem was and it went away and we discontinued. Um, I've got four of them right now that got production orders. So most likely leave is going to be granted. I only have one leave that was refused and I just found that out today actually. What, so um, I, are you aware if anyone's starting to mandamus the self-employed class no. where there's a whole stream <laughs> that hasn't moved or the caregivers? I'm like, no, I'm not. Yeah. 
That's the one that uh, I haven't looked at yet, just because it seems to be a whole category that's not getting looked at. Um, When you put your settlement notes for federal court, do you say that, do you have a timeline that you put in and get the DOJ to agree to? Do you say like, okay, we're going to settle this, it's going to go back and it's going to move forward. This application, this mandamus is now going to move forward. What's a reasonable time period? Six months, let's give them eight months. No, so I haven't so, done, uh, I mean, I haven't done anywhere near as much far? as, I haven't done anywhere near as much as uh, Chantel, but the ones that I've done, DOJ just says, check the portal. Mm-hmm. They're not usually my own file. So they, then I just forward that on to the person whose portal it is and then their application's been approved. Okay. Yeah. Most like all of mine pretty much have been honor system. Like they tell me, okay, X is going to happen. And within two days I get a letter that pushes the case forward. And I talk to my client and they're happy with that. And we just go ahead and discontinue it based on, you you know, they've, Mm -hmm. they've given me their word on it. I believe them. Um, No reason to disbelieve them. So yeah, I I haven't insisted on having that in writing. Fantastic. I know it's all been movement. um, Yeah. Usually by the time, I get the email, the client has gotten, well, it's, it's been approvals. So the client's gotten their approvals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what's the next court case that, that you want to share with us? Um, what is the next one? Since we did a happy one on mandamus, I want to load up. Actually, Stephen, what do you do when you find that there are two federal court cases that have come out, like the two things, and they're completely contradictory? What just, advice would you give to listeners? What advice go would I the, give to listeners? Go with the one that works for you or? Um, I mean, in federal court would just be like for litigators, it's yeah, either just manage client expectations. Even um, just, you know, applications, putting forward applications. You've got it depends two what I'm contradictory. Trying. Yeah. Like if someone says, will it, I don't normally get into federal court cases with clients, nor do I include them in submissions. If someone's asking if something will work on a judicial review, I'll just outline. I mean, usually you can find split decisions on pretty much every topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very rare unless you have like a federal court of appeal decision that the federal court's unanimous on something. So it's just managing client expectations. Yeah, we, And then we that Singh to... case, the two Singhs on weather conditions was really textbook on people asking, well, does it depend on the judge? And, you know, I go back and forth on that. But at least that day when there were two cases, same name, same issue, different results, it just helps manage expectations. Yeah, we just try to address the different things that the judge pointed out in the favorable decision, if that's the way we want it to go. So not necessarily citing the decision, but yeah. using the same chain of analysis. Correct. So then if you end up, you have to challenge it later. You've y- got the your case. arguments already there. Yeah. yeah. And trying to submit the additional documentation that maybe was missing, that kind of thing. So beefing up the application to make sure we've addressed it. That's how, how we deal with those kinds of things. Yeah. Like that's how I've approached. I mean, it has changed the way I do language in work permit applications, except at the port of entry again, because then they're just talking with CBSA and it can pretty much be assessed on the spot someone's language abilities yeah sorry what was the next court case you were going to share with us the federal court of appeal decision in canada citizenship and immigration v mason and i don't know how widespread this issue is going to become 
Um, it's a bit complicated to get into. I don't know if either of you read it. It's an admissibility, like national security case. So it's section three. I mean, you kind of have to, in order to explain the case, get into a little bit of the, the, the law. So it's inadmissibility, a permanent resident or a foreign national is inadmissible on security grounds for engaging in acts of violence that would or might endanger the lives or safety of persons in Canada. So the issue in these, there are two cases that go on to the Federal Court of Appeal that are kind of companion cases, with the main one being Canada Citizenship and Immigration v. Mason. And it's do the national security, well, I mean, even the way I worded that kind of taints the case and how I view it. Do, does that section of the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act encompass individuals who engage of acts of violence against individual Canadians? So in these cases, one was a domestic assault case. The other, I think, was some of a bar fight, if I remember correct. And in both cases, someone, the permanent resident or foreign national, because there was no conviction, wouldn't have been inadmissible under the serious crim or general crim provisions that render someone inadmissible. So CBSA in Vancouver pursued both people under security grounds because security grounds just require that there be reasons to believe that someone might be inadmissible, usually for terrorism. Um, but in this case, they went after them on whether they have engaged in acts of violence that would or might endanger the lives or safety of persons in Canada. Federal court in both cases said, no, that's not the purpose of the security sections, but they certified the following question, which is, is it reasonable to interpret paragraph 341E of the IRPA in a manner that does not require proof of conduct that has a nexus with national security or the security of Canada. And the Federal Court of Appeal ruled yes. So this is, first of all, I'm pretty sure this is gonna go to the Supreme Court of Canada. It's Erica Olmsted and Molly Joick at Edelman and Co. Um, it has sweeping ramifications yeah, for advising huge. anyone with a charge. Cause you know, you can no longer advise someone, oh, you know, if you're advising criminal counsel oh, my client's been charged with assault, domestic assault, a bar fight. It, no, you know, if they are not convicted, will they still be inadmissible to Canada? Before, I mean, you would have said, no, there has to be a conviction. Now, pending what the Supreme Court does, because I'm sure it's going to go to the Supreme Court, they no, no. can be if CBSA pursues them under security grounds. I think it's a huge overreach. Yeah, I mean, doesn't it render Section 36 almost obsolete, right? So it's redundant. Basically, the Federal Court of Appeal got into, I mean, obviously that issue was raised and the Federal Court of Appeal kind of just said, well, there are different sections that address different things. And in this case, there is violence. Um, and so it's encompassed. And yeah. Like why, it, why wouldn't they just use the committing an act provisions? Like, what's the point in having the committing an act provisions then? Like, committing act is abroad. Oh, this is in Canada. This is in yeah. Canada. Right, yeah. Right, right, right. Um, so, 
It's really interesting because I do find that CBSA is starting to really use the immigration legislation and the the wording set out in the legislation to broaden, to, mm-hmm. to do these far reach. I mean, look at, you know, criminality, serious crime, and then organized crime. Organized crime, yeah. Right? That, that's so a yeah. good example. you get to organized crime and almost anything and everything can fall under there. You don't need a conviction for organized crime. So Yeah, there's more than one person. Exactly. It's almost, you're done. Yeah. More than one person and, you know, reasonable grounds to believe. So th- this is where... You know, I think CBSA is getting a little bit trickier and keeping us on our toes by looking at that. And and it's an important thing for practitioners to make sure you read the legislation. Yeah. Look at the wording of the law. Um, don't look just at all the various websites and the policies, etc. Those are are wonderful, but they're not necessarily always accurate either. But always go to the law. I mean, I'm not even before this it. I can't remember. There were instances after 9-11 where terrorism law was being read super overbroad. And I can't remember them off the top of my head, but it's similar. To me, this is very similar in that, well, there's just all sorts of problems like that we've talked about a bit on um, borderlines in terms of like the philosophy behind this stuff where the Supreme Court, there's all these charter protections when it comes to criminal law that aren't available in immigration law, which is administrative. And the consequence in the administrative context, to me, seems far greater than in the criminal context. Like someone that, you know, convicted of domestic assault will probably get a peace bond a lot of the time, a fine, maybe a short custodial, yeah, community service. And there's all these protections built into that and then on the immigration side, they face basically banishment uh, for life. Because under the Section 34, there's no agency. No. There's no appeal right. And it's straight up banishment with less procedural rights than, um, than in the criminal context. So it's a case to watch. Because as you were saying, where CBSA can get aggressive, like I, if I was crowned, and I just, you, know, you want to go for the strictest penalty. I don't even know why you would bother with a criminal proceeding if you don't even need that to basically banish someone from Canada um, for life. Like, Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a big one. And and on that note, yeah. um, that it's like the bomb just went off and we're running <laughs> out of time. Yeah. Um, on that like happy that, note. Like that joke? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, that didn't work. But um, Stephen, thank you so much for the information you shared with us about language tests, CLB, MISREP, and other potential pitfalls that we should watch out for. Uh, federal court cases offer us guidance on how to apply and interpret the law often. So thank you very much for your insights. And let's see what 2022 holds for us. Yeah, AI. That'll be the big one for 2022. Mm-hmm. There'll finally oh, be a federal be so court case that has AI or Chinook. Yep. One Absolutely. of those two Enough. words. Maybe Avatar, too. Let's toss that yep. one in. Thanks again, Stephen, for your time. We really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah no you. problem. What are the differences between criminal and serious criminal inadmissibility? I don't know, Chantal. Maybe about three drinks? Also understand the hurdles to overcoming medical inadmissibility. 
Learn all you need to know in Inadmissibility and Remedies, the third volume in Iman's newly minted immigration law series. This concise and contemporary text will guide you through the process, procedure, and strategic elements involved in helping a client overcome claims of inadmissibility, making this an indispensable resource for immigration consultants and all immigration practitioners. Get your copy today by visiting emond.ca forward slash IR and enter promo code IR10 for 10% off. Things I wish I knew. One of the things I wish I knew was to not be shy when asking clients for money. You are worth that fee that you've quoted. You're worth the value of it. Make sure you ask for it. And no money, no move. Get the money up front. Get that retainer agreement up front. Make sure it's there. And then do the work. Or if you're choosing to do the work and then collect the money, make sure you ask for it. A lot of times people feel like they can't really ask the client for it, but you're worth every penny. You have got the skill set, the knowledge, and you've really invested the time to make sure you put your best foot forward for that particular client. Yeah, I, I think that asking for money doesn't have to be embarrassing. I mean, when any of us go into any other establishment, we expect to pay for the product or the service that we're receiving. And it shouldn't be any different with us. I mean, just because we're immigration counsel and we love what we do and, you know, at the end of the day, it's not all about the money, that doesn't mean that it's not at least somewhat about the money because it is somewhat about the money. If, if we're not making money at our jobs, how are we going to help people? If we go bankrupt, who are we helping then? And sometimes people will just call up just for a quick, quick question. No, no, this doesn't need to be on the record and I don't need to pay you a fee because it's just a quick question that leads to 17 other quick questions. And next thing you know, a half an hour of your time is gone. So make sure you bill for every penny and tell your client, I'm happy to answer any of your questions, but please know that there is a fee involved. Yeah, exactly. A, a lot of people don't realize how much um, investment in time and money and energy that we've put into developing what information is inside our brains. And we didn't do all of that work and spend all that money on our education and sacrifice time with our families on the weekends to learn all this information just to give it away for free. And the same way that you wouldn't go into a restaurant and eat food and expect not to pay for it, I mean, our information and our knowledge is our product, and people have to expect that they should pay a reasonable amount for it. So, show me the money. Things I wish I knew. We would like to thank our very special guest, Stephen Murrens, for joining us today to give us a litigation update with the top federal court cases of 2021. We know that all of our listeners are going to get a huge amount of benefit out of this, and we really appreciate your time. Thank you, Stephen. The Welcome Home podcast is produced, engineered, and edited by Alex Ross of Never Sleeps Network, directed and published by Danan Haas, and marketing by Katrina Harley. For our listeners, Emond is offering 10% off titles in the Immigration Law series. Just visit emond.ca forward slash welcome home immigration and enter code welcome home at checkout. And we want to hear from you. Please email us with your questions or topics at welcomehome at emon.ca or leave us a voicemail at phone number 416-975-3925 
extension 227. My name is Dana Hawes, and I'm the senior publisher at Iman Publishing. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Welcome Home podcast. We at Iman Publishing are committed to providing best-in-class immigration law content, including our immigration law series edited by Chantelle Deloge and Catherine Sawicki, our best-selling treatise, Canadian Immigration and Refugee Law, A Practitioner's Handbook, 3rd Edition, new initiatives like the Welcome Home podcast, as well as our EMOND exam prep ICCRC practice exams and a host of immigration law casebooks and textbooks for law school, university, and college students. EMOND is also the proud provider of most of the required resources for the Queen's Immigration and Citizenship Law Program for Immigration Consultants.